Well, this morning is every, uh, every other morning, I, I grabbed my phone and I have this routine of things that I go through. Maybe some of you can relate to this. Uh, but first of all, I'll, I'll check my sleep score to verify whether or not I had a good night's rest. Then I'll, I'll check the cameras for bears. There were no bears last night. Then I'll check the weather and see what we're looking at for the next couple days. And then inevitably, I try to stay away from the news because I don't want to get depressed first thing in the morning. But I'll end up on some form of social media, which also serves to depress me and also make me angry. But I stumbled upon this one young man who was declaring on social media that there is more than one gospel in the New Testament. He says, there are many gospels in the Bible. How do we know which is the right one? You see, the thing about the social medias is, is that anybody can get up there with their iPhone or their fake wannabe iPhone Android, and they can say whatever they want. And there's no one to back check them, whether it's true or not. And what the young man was declaring was absolutely not true. There is one gospel. Scripture only declares one gospel, and it is crystal clear in the pages of Scripture. Piero did an outstanding job explaining that gospel this morning. I don't have anything left to preach on. Thank you, Piero. When we see the gospel in the pages of Scripture, the good news of God saving us through faith as a reflection of his power. The gospel is, in fact, the power of God. And as you had heard already, we are going to hopefully see that in God's word this morning. If you're not there already, head over to Romans chapter 1. If you are new here with us, first of all, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate you coming today, today of all days. We preach here what is called expositionally. And what that means is we expose the meaning of the text. We believe that the author of the text, inspired by scripture, actually has a meaning. And we can actually understand what that meaning is. And so my job, hopefully, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is to expose that meaning. And then the Holy Spirit does that work of applying that meaning to our hearts. We don't come to scripture with our ideas, right? With our understandings and then look for scripture to then uphold those ideas, right? Because what's the problem with that? You can come to Scripture with a lot of wacky ideas, and then you go all over the Bible to find different verses, pulling them out of context to try and support that one crazy idea. Hopefully, the main point of my sermon is the main point of the passage that we are dealing with. And we have just started looking at Romans. Last week, we looked at the first 15 verses. Today, we are only going to look at the first uh, uh, I'm sorry, 16 and 17 together. But to review from last week, we looked at the Apostle Paul's greeting and introduction to his letter at the church at Rome. His longest introduction, one packed with theological nuggets. The long and short of the book is the gospel. It is an exposition, if you will. It is mining the depths of the gospel. Martin Luther called Romans the purest gospel. Defining terms, again, when we say gospel around here, we don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Those are, those are gospel accounts. But when we say gospel, we mean the good news of what God did to save sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. And so if you are visiting with us again today, thank you. But please know this, Highlands Bible Church is about one thing. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about bringing glory to God through the making and maturing of disciples of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel calls us to complete devotion. It calls us to Jesus himself. It calls us to our encouragement, and we press deeper into the gospel. And it's my hope and prayer that today we will learn more about the power of the gospel. Let's look again at our main text for this morning. I want to just give us two things that we see in the gospel this morning from these two verses. Look at verse 16 again. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul starts off by connecting this passage with the previous passage. He uses the word for or because, and it refers back to verse 15 where he declared what? I am eager to come to you in Rome and to do what? To preach the gospel to you. And then he says why? He says, because I'm not ashamed of it. I'm eager to come to you to preach the gospel to you in Rome because I'm not ashamed of it. Now, why would Paul have reason to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, for one thing, remember where they are. They're in Rome, the capital of the world's superpower, the largest empire at that time. Millions of people, some sophisticated, wealthy, powerful, smart, and well as as far as world religions go, Christianity actually is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, that's your plan? God comes down to earth to, to encounter a people that rejected him in the first place, and his big plan is that he gets beaten, whipped, tortured, put on a cross, and dies. That doesn't sound like a very strong, powerful God. That sounds like a weak People thought that was ridiculous. People thought from the you know what happens when you mess with Rome. That's what happens. When you reject Rome, you're going to get stomped on by Rome. That's what people thought should have happened. God should have come down and blasted us all. But no, he came down in the form of a man, humbling himself in true obedience, obedience even to the point of death on a cross. To the modern mind, to the sophisticated mind in Rome, and maybe even 2023 America, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense. That is something to be ashamed of. But Paul says, I can't wait to get to Rome so I can preach that gospel because I'm not ashamed of it, no matter what anyone else might think. Paul elsewhere camps on this. that He knows full well that people mock Christianity and think it's ridiculous. He says in 1 Corinthians in his letter to the church at Corinth, in verses 22 to 23, he says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So yeah, Paul starts out by acknowledging the elephant in the room. I'm going to come to Rome and people are going to mock. I know people are mocking you already because it doesn't make any sense. There are people who mock the gospel. And today, church, in 2023 America, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that there are people who mock the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians are thought to be crazy, narrow-minded, hypocritical bigots who believe in fairy tales. If that's you and you believe those things and you're here today, thank you for coming. Really appreciate you coming today. I'm very glad you are here. But I hope that this will give you an honest look this morning and have you really, really think about this. Have you really think about what the message of the gospel is. Paul is going to give us some reasons why 
he is not ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse 16 again. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for, because, right, here comes the reason, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He drops another for, another purpose clause, the reason why he shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, and here's the reason why he shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We just sum it. The Lord is my salvation. That's why. Reason number one why he should not be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Paul's like, yeah, I'll preach the gospel in the middle of the Roman Empire. And you know why? Because it's the power of salvation. That's why. Look at the first phrase. The power of God for salvation. Two questions pop out from this. One, why do we need salvation? And two, who is the salvation for? First of all, why do we need salvation? Well, remember, the gospel is the good news that God saves people from their sin. God saves people who were his enemies. And guess what? Every single one of us enters this world as God's enemy, an object of his wrath, an irreconcilable difference with him that we cannot reconcile ourselves and headed straight for an eternal hell. Welcome to Highlands Bible Church. We got to start off with the bad news, though, because that's the truth. That's what we need salvation from. So yes, we all need salvation. We actually need salvation from God himself. The great RC said that we are saved by God from God. That's who we're being saved from. It sounds a little weird. Maybe you think we're just being saved by the guy in a red suit and the pitchfork in, in, in hell. No, we're being saved from God himself because he has legit wrath for our sin. And he has made a way for us to be saved from that wrath. But secondly, who is this salvation for? If you know your Bibles, most of the Bible is the Old Testament. And it's written to the people of Israel, the nation that God established to be his nation. And the nation that God established, the Messiah would come through, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. But it's not just for them. It never was going to be just for them. Back in Genesis chapter 12, he says to Abraham right from the jump, he says, guess what? All the nations of the world will be blessed through you, meaning your line. It's never meant to just stay with Israel. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations to point back to God and the coming Messiah, but they blew it. They made it all about themselves and their laws, the Pharisees and the scribes and the hypocrisy that's there. We see that all in the gospel where Jesus battled with them. But Jesus, or Paul rather, says salvation is for everyone, no matter who you are. He says, first the Jew, because it came through the Jewish nation, but then also for the Greek. Greek there means everybody else. There's just two big buckets in the world that he's looking at. He's looking at the Jewish nation and the Greeks. Greeks mean everybody else. And so the gospel is for, and salvation is for everyone. The gospel was always meant to be global. In our our men's Bible study, shameless plug, every Wednesday morning, 7 a.m. at the Sussex Diner, we're going through the book of Acts, and we have this wonderful picture of the birth of the New Testament church, where the Holy Spirit comes down and actually saves 
Gentiles. The Jewish believers, their mind goes and just kind of leaks out their ears. They don't understand what just happened. The, the Gentiles, those that we've been taught are unclean, that we shouldn't associate with, now are our brothers and sisters in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes, absolutely. That is what that is saying, that, that the gospel then is for everyone, and it's spread to all people, all people who believed. And so I'll say it this way. In the gospel, the first thing we see is the power of God for salvation. In the gospel, we see the power of God for salvation. And, and, and church, there's a spiritual reality at work that most people don't even think about. Most people don't even acknowledge. We're too busy with the here and now. We're too busy with our jobs and our kids and our cars and our money and our sicknesses, our leisure, our Easter dinner, all of that. We're just too busy to think about the spiritual reality. But there's a paper-thin curtain between us and a spiritual reality, the reality that we face every day, and that's the curse of sin. We see it all around us, the effects of the curse of sin all around us. We can't deny the evidence that this world is broken, and the gospel is the solution. Because the reality of the solution is not so much what we can do out there, although we should do things out there, out in the world, to try and address some of these things. But before we can do that, guess what? It's got to start in here. The gospel first heals and reconciles us, our own souls, back to our creator. And so if you get the cart before the horse, and if you're trying to fix all of society's woes without trying to fix our own hearts first, it's not going to work. We have to fix ourselves first. And the first step to fixing ourselves, Paul says right in verse 16, is everyone who believes. You need to believe. You need to have faith. You need to understand these things, that this actually happened, that Jesus actually is the Savior, and I actually need one. Faith alone saves Probably everyone in the room knows John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Later on, in verse, two verses later in verse 18, Jesus says this to prove what, he, what we are saved from, God's condemnation. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Faith is open to anyone who believes. But we have to believe first. Jew, Greek, American, Muslim, anyone who believes, salvation is open to. Acts puts it this way in Acts 2.21, quoting the prophet Joel, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A common objection to Christianity, right? is that it's exclusive. You arrogant Christians. You really think that 8 billion people are wrong and you're the only one that has it right? That is flat out arrogant and exclusive. But here's the only problem with that statement. It's logically untrue. Because truth by nature is exclusive. 1 plus 1 equals 2. It doesn't equal negative 43 one day and then 117 the next day. Right? The speed limit on Route 94 is 40 miles an hour. Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> there are things that are objectively and exclusively true. Truth by nature is exclusive. 
And there's some stuff in the Bible that is hard to understand. I'll admit it. Peter said it. Peter's like, some of the stuff that Paul writes, it's hard to understand. But you know what's not hard to understand? You know what's crystal clear in the, in the Bible? The gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't get spun up on all the others. I know Leviticus is hard to understand. It hurts my head too, okay? But the gospel of Jesus Christ is crystal clear in the pages of Scripture. And that is exclusively and 100% true and applies for our salvation no matter who you are as long as you believe. And church, for us, for those who would profess faith in Jesus Christ, ask yourself this question. Are you ashamed of the gospel? And if you are, why? Paul gives us some solid reasoning here. And the bottom line is this. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it's true. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it's true. Is there a reason to be ashamed of the gospel in 2023, America? Well, we're not the popular kids. I don't know, I don't know if we ever were the popular kids, Christians. It's not very popular to be a Christian in 2023, America. And we definitely shouldn't make it our goal to be cool and accepted by the world. The world that is clearly anti-God and our super woke, self-obsessed, overly psychologized, therapeutic culture kicks God out everywhere they go. And it's against God and it's against us. So our goal shouldn't be to be liked by the world. But church, Christians, Highlands, we have nothing to be ashamed of in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to stand our ground. It is true. Paul will go on to give us another reason why he himself is not ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse 17. For in it... Another four. He's all about purpose clauses today. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul here writes another reason. We see it. In in the gospel, we see the righteousness of God. And that righteousness empowers us and our faith for life. And so I'll say the second point this way. The second thing we see in the gospel, in the gospel we see the power of God's righteousness for life. We see God's power, the power of God's righteousness for life. Now, full disclosure, there have been hundreds, if not thousands of pages by guys with really thick glasses and patches on their shoulders that are stuck in offices in very lofty institutions about what this means, the righteousness of God. And to me, it's just one of those discussions that I just don't get the issue. In the words of the great theologians, Lincoln Park, in the end, it doesn't really matter. Some of you will get that in the right hand. Because it either means that God is righteous, or it means that we are righteous in God. I think they're both true. And I think that's exactly what he's going for here. God is certainly righteous, and we are certainly righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. In defining terms, what does righteousness mean? Righteousness kind of has one of those connotations where you ever been called self-righteous, right? A holy, that's not a good thing to be called, right? But, but righteous is to be right. It is, it is the, the quality of actually being correct. But the Greek word used here actually applies rightness in a judicial sense. It means that a judge has ruled someone right. In whatever court case that might be, right? Someone's righteous and someone is not. The judge makes that ruling. 
And as you know, sometimes our courts get things right, sometimes not so much. We never have that problem with God. God is the perfect judge. He never gets anything wrong. He is sinless. He always makes right, correct, good, fair judgments. You know why? Because he is righteous. He's the very definition of the word righteous. And when we come to the attributes of God, church, we've got to remember that God is the very definition of those attributes. We don't have a standard of righteousness over here and then compare God to that. No, God is the standard of righteousness. God is love. God is grace. God is mercy. All of those things. God is holiness and set apart. And so all those attributes, right, they are his and they are his in definition. Anything else we have is derivative of that. We know what righteous is. Why? Because we compare it to a standard. And that standard is God himself. But this righteousness still needs to be applied to our account. We still need to be counted righteous in his sight. So Jesus then takes our sin on the cross. The sin that was on us, Jesus then takes it on his shoulders on the cross. He takes our payment for that sin on the cross. And in exchange for that, he gives us his, watch it now, righteousness. So God is righteous, and we are declared righteous by believing in Jesus Christ. That's the great exchange, as Luther called it. And that is all through faith. And so biblically speaking, church, <clears throat> biblically speaking, both are true. God is righteous, and so are we through faith. This is the huge doctrine of justification by faith. And some of you just went to sleep when I said that. But that is the central doctrine of our faith justification by faith. We are declared, justification means we are declared what? Righteous. How? By faith. To anyone who believes, we see the power of God in righteousness declared to us. Now, the thing is that every other religion on the planet has got this backwards. And I'm not just saying that. Every other religion on the planet has got this backwards. Because every other religion will tell you, do this, sing this, memorize this, go on this pilgrimage, wear this, don't wear that, don't say this, say all of these things, and maybe, just maybe, you will be justified. Maybe, just maybe, you will be, watch this, declared righteous. Biblical Christianity is completely different. You know why? Because through faith in Jesus Christ, God declares you righteous. Right then and there, you don't work for your righteousness. God declares you righteous. If you are here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're a member of Highlands Bible Church or you are a member of another church, right? The moment that you believed in Jesus Christ, you were declared righteous. It happened. We don't work for that. But then afterwards, Christians, we get to work. We work from our identity, not for our identity. I'm stealing from a future sermon in chapter 3, but it's just too perfect. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. 
But now the righteousness of God, Paul's very fond of that phrase apparently, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, to it, the righteousness of God, watch this, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Did you catch that? We see the righteousness of God in the gospel, in the way he satisfies his wrath for sin, because his wrath had to be satisfied. It wasn't just like he's like, all right, I'm not mad about that anymore. No, no, he's still mad about that. And he poured it out on his son. It was satisfied. So his holiness was vindicated and satisfied. And as a return, we are righteous. We see the power of God in the righteousness of God, in the gospel. Our passage in verse 17, Paul goes on to say that it is revealed from faith for faith, which is another strange and complicated phrase. But we can surmise that our righteousness comes through faith to begin with, and it exists to propel us in future faith. Right? It's still faith. You get up tomorrow morning as a Christian, you're still living your life by faith. You came to the gospel through faith, and you will continue in faith. And God himself, through his Holy Spirit, will cause you to persevere in that faith. That's why Paul calls for backup by quoting Habakkuk 2.4 in the Old Testament. The righteous will live by his faith. We're going to live every single day as a Christian in faith. Faith is not only what saves us once we are declared righteous by God, we also live out that faith. In the gospel, we see the power of God's righteousness for life. So the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus brings us life for the first time and also sustains life. I know I've mentioned Martin Luther a couple times, but we're in Romans, so you're going to have to get used to me talking about Martin Luther. This is the verse that saved Martin Luther, or, or let me say it a different way. This is the verse that God used to save Martin Luther. If you don't know much about him, he was a monk. And he was trapped in this cycle of religious obedience, and he felt hopeless. And when he got to this passage, and he got to, he hated this phrase. I hate this phrase, the righteousness of God. Do you have any idea why he hated that phrase? Because he felt he would never be good enough. That God had this, this, this standard. And, and, and believe me, as a monk, like, you know, that's varsity stuff, right? Like, he's got all these things that he has to do, right? Probably shaved that thing in the middle of his head, you know? Wore these weird clothes, did all kinds of crazy things, right? And when he's, he says, that's really, I'll, I'll never measure up to that. I'll never measure up to the righteousness of God. Until it clicked when he read this verse. Here's what he said. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, which the merciful God justifies me by his faith, by my faith, rather. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Righteousness went from being a hated word to one of the most sweetest concepts that he could think of. Why? Because it's not his performance. It's his in Jesus' performance. That's the difference. That's when the chains fell off. And so church, Christians, this morning, the righteousness of God sustains our lives after it has been given by God. 
We don't give ourselves this righteousness. God gives it to us. And then church, the righteous live by faith. Do we get that? This all comes down to, again, our identity and who we are. And if you're a Christian, you've got to start there. I am righteous in God's sight. I am accepted through, his, through faith. He sees me as good enough in Christ. He lavishes his love on me and his grace and his power and the Holy Spirit through me in faith in Jesus Christ. Now that is the foundation of how we are to live. And so Christian, how are you living? Is it on your own efforts or is it in the faith that gave you the very righteousness of God to begin with? Listen, church, we have to work from our identity in Jesus Christ, not for our identity in Jesus Christ. It was given to us by faith. God makes you righteous. And if you're struggling today with one of those things and those thoughts in your head that I will never be good enough at whatever, remember, the most important being of all thinks you are in Jesus Christ. That's where you have to start. That's where you have to start as your identity. And so where does this leave us? You may have noticed that I just went a whole sermon on Easter Sunday without mentioning the resurrection. Well, that was mostly intentional because none of this applies without the, God, without the resurrection in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? You can't take any part of the gospel out. If you do, it ceases to be the gospel. You can't take away Jesus' divinity or his humanity or his sinlessness. It ceases to be the gospel. You can't take away the sacrificial death on the cross. And certainly, most of all, you can't take away his glorious resurrection. Because, church, there's no power for salvation. There's no righteousness of God at all without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. Worse than that, we are lying about God. Worse than that, like me, I'm standing up here saying Christ has been raised from the dead, and if he has been raised from the dead, guess what? I'm lying about God, because God says that. And I hope God's not lying, because he's not. I wouldn't want to be in that spot. We read that if Christ hasn't been raised, then we should all pack up and go home. The day they find Jesus' body, I need to find the new line of work. Because it's all over. It all hangs on the resurrection. All of our faith hangs on the resurrection. No resurrection, no power of God for salvation. No power of God for righteousness for life. This whole sermon should be deleted from YouTube and Spotify, and I should say thanks for coming to my TED Talk. It doesn't matter. Last week in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul tells us that at the resurrection... Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power. Those two things are related. You see, he's talking about the power of salvation in verse 16, and he goes all the way back to verse 4 and says, well, where did that power come from? Where did we see that power? At the resurrection. That's where we saw that power. That's where we saw not Jesus become divine, but then Jesus, after finishing the work of the cross and being risen from the grave, now is appointed. Now he assumes this, this role of the powerful Savior who can save us because he proved it in the resurrection. And so, friends, the power of God, as it is seen, revealed in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe in righteousness 
of ourselves and the righteousness of God is only because of the gospel, only because of the resurrection. There is one true gospel. There only is one gospel. One consistent gospel that scripture proclaims and the power of that gospel for for salvation, for life, for righteousness is because of the resurrection. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we thank you even this morning, Lord, that although it is Easter, we proclaim the resurrection every Sunday. We proclaim the resurrection through faith in our risen Savior and Lord. Help us, Father, to remember what happened at the cross, what happened at the tomb, and what that meant for us. Lord, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That salvation, the power of the gospel is seen in the salvation that is available for everyone. And I pray if there's someone here that has not done that, that they would do that today. And Lord, we see that the power of the righteousness of God is declared in the gospel. That you, being the perfect righteous one, declare us righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, may we live then forward by faith in our resurrected Savior and Lord. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.